Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be speaking to thought leaders, product leaders, and practitioners to help inspire you to level up your product management career. If you like the sound of that, why not pop over to the website, onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we go deep into a question that occupies my thinking all the time. How can we interview people better? We talk about building a user interviewing culture into your company, the importance of developing user empathy, validating not just your hypotheses, but the people you're talking to, tamping down some of your own biases, and loads of other tips and tricks that could be used to get the insight you need. We also reflect on whether these techniques are an unambiguous force for good, or whether there's a dark side to all these Jedi mind tricks. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Michelle Hansen. Michelle's an American living in Denmark, a podcaster and co-founder of Geocodio, a SaaS startup where she's fought the system and scaled it without taking external funding. That'll never catch on. She's also a keen gymnast and loves talking to people about talking to people. Tonight, I'm going to be talking to her about talking to people about talking to people and about a new book, Deploy Empathy, where she aims to help you channel your inner rubber duck and learn the skill of talking to your customers and learning to truly listen to them. I'll be practicing my active listening tonight and putting in some thoughtful, awkward pauses where appropriate. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Hi. <laughs> How are you? I am very well. Thank you very much. I might edit the awkward pauses in afterwards. <laughs> Talking to people about talking to people about talking to people. Really, uh, it was yeah. hard for me to not laugh when you said that. <laughs> so first things first, the book has been out for around about a month now, I believe. So obviously, first of all, congratulations on the book. But also, how has the reception been so far? It's been great. It's been such an interesting process because I started writing the book in public as a newsletter. Right. So I wrote a newsletter with each chapter going out to it in, in February. And so it's been such a such an interesting process because I've been getting feedback on it from the very beginning and the launch has been been great just slowly starting to uh get out and, and and talk about it beyond that group of people who started following it based on the newsletter and and my podcast. But does that mean then that the people that were following it on your podcast and on your newsletter and blogs and so forth They've basically read it already, or is there a lot of additional bonus content that wasn't in those original posts? There is a lot more. I, I would say the book is also much better organized <laughs> than the newsletter <laughs> was. Like the newsletter was not written in any particular order. It was just sort of as a topic struck me, or the book came out of questions I was getting from other founders about how to interview and talk to customers. So if, you know, someone DM'd me a question about something, I'd be like, oh, you know what, I should write about that. And so things are completely out of order in the newsletter. Actually, I, I have a, an issue queued up to send out sort of an index to the newsletter. And as I was writing it up, it re- made me think about the amount of content that is present in the newsletter and versus the book. And there's quite a lot, actually, that I added for the book version and and also I think is just there's things I maybe touched on in the newsletter that you know a sentence got expanded into a chapter of its own right there's of course more references and 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 whatnot in the book as well because I also kind of want it to be a guidepost to other places I purposely wanted to only talk about interviewing customers because that's really 
where the hole was, but there's a lot of great resources on surveying and product management, product strategy, like all these sort of other related topics that I intentionally did not talk about. So yeah, there, there, there's some overlap, but there is also maybe 30 to 40% unique content in the book. And have you had any specific feedback from anyone, either another author, maybe one of the ones that you mentioned in your book, or maybe from some practitioner that you didn't know about that's given you some feedback on the book that you've looked at and thought, yeah, that, that really made it all worthwhile. You know, that's, that's hit the spot for me. I've received a lot of feedback from a lot of people and relied so much on, on other authors for help. One point that really made me, that made me say, okay, this, this book has accomplished what I wanted it to do and it's ready to be released was when somebody I, I didn't know reached out to me on LinkedIn, actually. And oh no, they were actually, they commented on someone else's. So someone else had posted about it who I know that they had read it and somebody commented on it that they had read it and it was making them completely rethink all of their interactions with their coworkers and their family. Oh, wow. And that they were noticing themselves applying it beyond just specifically product development. And, you know, I think, I think there's always this fear when you're getting feedback from people you know, even if it's critical, that like there's some amount of bias there because they know you. <laughs> And the mum test, right? Yes, exactly. And so hearing that from somebody that didn't know my goals of the book, didn't know me, had no like had no reason to trust what I was saying, really, that, that it was having this kind of effect on them, that was when I knew that it was ready to go out. Cause I sort of have this secret, not so secret goal with the book that it will help people become more empathetic in their daily lives. Nobody or maybe very few people write, be more empathetic on their daily to-do list, but they write, <laughs> sell more stuff, make a landing page, you know, like all of those things. And so, and if it's like, if I can help people learn how to be empathetic towards those goals that they already have, then maybe they can apply it to the rest of their lives. And hearing that this person had done that without me even stating this in the book was that moment of being like, okay... I need to stop fiddling with commas and rewriting this book every week. Like <laughs> it's time to to get it out because it's doing what I set out for it to do. But speaking of time, I mean, you've obviously touched on some of the origin story of the book, but why was now the time to actually bring all of that stuff together and make an actual book out of it? Because it's a long process, right? You've and you've kind of touched on it as well. The whole, whole idea that you're having to obsess over every single dot and comma because you want to make sure that it's perfect because it's going out on paper and it's going out to the world. Was it like lockdown fever? Like now's the time because I'm stuck in my house type approach? Or was that something that you'd had on your mind for a while and you really wanted to get this out kind of now and that was a natural thing for you to do? It developed very organically. So I think the I guess the seed of it was a lockdown thing because I, in the fall, I mentored a mastermind group through Founder Summit, which was originally an in-person conference that had to pivot to being online because of COVID. And so in the fall, they ran these mastermind groups. And since we're investors in Calm Company Fund, which runs Founder Summit, I was invited to be one of the mentors for the group. And you know, I told the group, you know, I, I come from a product background and my functional, you know, expertise is in 
customer interviewing. And so, you know, always happy to, to help people with that. And so I would get questions from them. And I realized that I, I, I was getting these questions and I didn't have one solid place to send people that would, that did not presume any prior UX research background. So there are a lot of great books on the topic. Like I love Steve Portugal's books. Jim Callback's Job Speed on Playbook is one of my favorites. I was reading those books and kind of sending those to people thinking like, I was like, you know, okay, so read this chapter here and then go listen to this this podcast. And then here's this blog post. And but then there's this other book, but only this part is relevant to you. This one is written for product managers, <laughs> not founders. Like, and it ended up being this very long emails. And I had other people too outside of Founder Summit asking me for resources and advice. And I just didn't have one solid place to send people. And as we know, as product people, the repeated manual work is the symptom of the need for a product. Um, (laughs) But I didn't want to admit that to myself because I have heard from so many authors about how difficult the process of writing a book is, how lonely it was. And I was like, this is COVID. We we were in lockdown at the time. And I was like, I don't need any more loneliness in my life. (laughs) And But then just having these conversations over and over again made me be like, you know what? This is a book. I need it myself. So even if nobody else ever reads it, nobody except me ever sends anybody to it, like I am solving a problem for myself. And I was just excited about the topic. It's, you know, talking to people about talking to people is my favorite topic. (laughs) And so it was a very fun little distraction where, you know, put the kids to bed at night and then just hop in bed with my laptop and just sort of bang out these newsletter issues. You know, that there was no sort of broader timing reason for it, though, in the process of writing it and, you know, talking about writing it and whatnot. I ended up coming across other people who are also writing about empathy and software development. And there's actually someone who's writing a book about empathy-driven development, as they call it. And so I think maybe it is kind of a moment for empathy in, in software, but I had no idea about any of that. It was really just coming out of my my own excitement and my own conversations with people and other people saying, yes, write a book, and me being like, no, and then <laughs> kind of be like, fine, okay, I'll, I'll write the newsletter. And then if Nobody else ever reads it. At least I have this, you know, I can send people to my newsletter archive and be like, here's all of the scripts. Here's all of the tactics. I don't have to send you off to 10 different books and blog posts and everything else. And it's organized. Yeah. And you've obviously hit the nail on the head there with regards to it being kind of a moment. There's a bunch of books that have come out around this stuff. And you've mentioned again, as you say, a lot of those in your book. I've spoken to some of the people that have written those books. Your book's a bit different to some of these books. How did you manage to tread a path that was different to all of these other classic books? So one way to think about it is sort of the level of prior knowledge that's assumed and when you might use those books. So for example, one way to look at it is on like a 1 to 10 scale of complexity and prior knowledge assumed. So I would say the the first step and and this this comes out of the the 30 odd interviews I did with with readers of the newsletter that the mom test is really the first step for a lot of people that inspires that light bulb moment of like oh wait like I could talk to people I should talk to people I shouldn't <laughs> ask them if this business is a good idea there's other ways to ask it like uh, when you're thinking of of starting a product 
I would say that book is like that that first step light bulb moment. And then, you know, academic books on activity theory are like step 10 that <laughs> are are very difficult to parse even if you have years of experience with this. And then I would say I think I would probably put job speed on theory to practice as like a step 5 in that scale and maybe Steve Portugal's books as like step 6 because those are definitely written for researchers and I would say my book is like step 2 to 3. So that's kind of where I saw that gap being and you know I also read a lot of books in the process of writing the book. For example, I'd say like Cindy Alvarez's book is like a 3 to a 4. And so just kind of understanding like where it fits in all of that. And also, I, you know, when I started writing, the, the initial tagline was, it was very long. It was like a book about <laughs> writing, a, a book about talking to customers for developers and makers, because there weren't any books that were really targeted towards the solo founder, except for the mom test, like Cindy Alvarez's book, Jim Kalbeck's book, Sue Portugal's book, like they all assume a large company with a big team and resources. And, you know, Cindy Alvarez's book is written, kind of written for startups, but still assumes sort of funded startups. So I wanted to speak to like, how can you do this when you don't have any resources, you don't have a budget? And maybe that applies to developers and makers and, and indie hackers. It also implies to a product manager who has realized that stuff isn't working, that products coming out of the smartest guys in the room putting their heads together on a whiteboard and then coming up with a product isn't working and they need something that they can get going without institutional support. So that's sort of where it came from, from that perspective and kind of how I think about it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So it's, I mean, one of the things in the book, actually, which I noticed, obviously, at the end is the whole section for founders as well. So as you say, for people that don't have any teams yet, it's. I guess it's really interesting because a lot of these people have kind of had this light bulb that's made them decide to start a company, but they have no real idea how to do it. And they're just basically doing it based off of their idea. So trying to get in early, I guess, is actually a really interesting thing to do because it starts them off on the right track rather than several months down the line when they start hiring other people, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the themes from the book, enough for people to get excited about them but still have to buy the book you know, because that's obviously important. So as I've said, I've spoken about discovery on the podcast before with Cindy was one of the people that I spoke to it about. So it's a really hot topic in many ways, but a real common theme is like, and you've touched on it again yourself. There's sometimes people just don't do it either because they don't have a team or because they do have a team, but they're being managed in such a way that this just doesn't come up. Now, obviously, your book is pretty much founded on the idea that this is an important thing to do. But how can you drive that importance with either your management, if you're in a bigger company, or with your co-founder, if they're being very skeptical about this stuff? Introducing customer research into an organization that does not have a history with it, that is not you know, hearing from the leadership that this is important is very hard. It is a slog. And <laughs> there is a line in the book where I, I said that and some experienced researchers who, who were doing reads of the book for me 
or just sort of like, I'm so glad you said this because it is just, it is a struggle. One thing I would say is, so let's say you're a product manager, you've got several levels above you and you've got leadership. Get your manager and your leadership to read Clayton Christensen books. Those books are written for leaders. He's one of the, you know, leading or was, I guess, unfortunately, leading icons of the jobs to be done movement. And his books are written for executives. They're exactly the kind of book that a CEO would read on the beach. So (laughs) get them to read one of his books. It almost doesn't even matter which one it is. Get them to read that one. Then once your CEO or your VP or whomever has read that book, then get them and your immediate management to read maybe Jim Kaubach's book, which is also more leadership level, though very tactical. And so even if your manager just skims it, then they at least have a sense of what you're doing. But I would strongly suggest getting that buy-in and leadership needs to think it's their own idea before they move forward with it. (laughs) Now, this sounds like a nice segue into my next question. So in the book, again, you're looking to teach people techniques to understand customers understand users better by asking the right questions, maybe questions in a different way to how they'd normally ask them, tamp down some of their existing biases and maybe instinct to interrupt or to try and guide people. There's a lot of stuff in there around really trying to open up to people and be a vessel for their opinions. And you use a lot of, or you suggest a lot of techniques in there around basically I don't want to say manipulating, but like using human psychology to get those answers out of people by asking questions in certain ways and leaning on certain cognitive biases that people have to help to get them to open up, which is obviously fantastic. But at the same time, could be considered, you could use those powers for evil, right? Like one of the ways that you just mentioned there about making people think it's their idea, you know, there could be some levers you could pull with people there to try and help them do that. Do you think that there is a chance to? kind of manipulate people with some of these techniques? Or do you think that it's safe enough to put these out to the world? That's something I struggled with quite a bit. And, you know, when I, I when I think it was when the book was released on Amazon, and I tweeted it out, and people were congratulating me. There was one person who, they didn't even follow me. So I don't even know how they found the tweet. (laughs) <laughs> who replied, you know, something like aka how to manipulate people 101. And they smartly deleted that a few seconds later, but I saw it. <laughs> and it reminded me of that and I shared this with someone and they said, "You know, somebody who manipulates people, they know everything you in your book and then some. They instinctually already know how to do it." If they are someone who is looking to do evil in the world and manipulate people for negative reasons, they already know how to do all of this. They've been doing it their whole life. They don't need someone to teach them how to do it. It's the people who are maybe like me, maybe a little nicer, more naive, less adept at influencing others that really need to be spelled out like, hey, like this, you know, this is how you do this. But, you know, people who are good at manipulating people, they're already socially fluid. They're, uh, God, what is it? I was reading a, a book a couple of years ago on how 
there are, you know, there are so many psychopaths at the top of business and how they just instinctually know <laughs> all of these things with the psychopath test. Yeah, I remember that one. It's a good book. So it is a concern of mine, but I simply have to trust that people will use it for good. I explicitly say that in the book that I expect people to use it for good. You know, and and when you're interviewing someone about, you know, their process for creating invoices, like really how evil can you be with that? Like <laughs> you're getting them to open up about a very boring business daily process they're doing and and like, you know, if you're if you're building something that is a frequent and painful problem, you know, there's, they already have this problem. You're not, you can't manipulate someone into having a problem. You, like, sure, you can do all sorts of scammy tactics and, and whatnot. I don't do that. I mean, I, you know, actually, I did hesitate to even talk about how to reach out to people on LinkedIn to interview them because any founder gets, and developer, anybody else gets so much spam on LinkedIn that I was like, oh, I don't want to contribute to that. <laughs> But then people are saying, you know, that's because you can see titles and whatnot. If you want to talk to people in a specific industry, like it can be a really good place to reach out to people. You know, so I, I can't know what everyone's intent is, but I I have told people my expectation of how they use the book several times. I tell them to use it ethically. And if they have a propensity to manipulate people for evil, they were already doing that. I think that's fair enough. I, just, I was just trying to think of ways that you could use some of these techniques to get people to tell you stuff that they don't want to tell you. And I think you actually even mentioned that in the book. Like you've had to sometimes shut people down and get them back on track because you think that they're giving away a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. guess as, uh, as per Spider-Man, there's great power and great responsibility. Mm -hmm. But you also say in the book that interviews are more like acting than a conversation. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to tell me that as I interview people and <laughs> have to pretend to be awake and alive. But I guess the question is with regards to the title of the book around sort of deploying empathy. Are we actually saying that we're developing empathy in people or are we saying that we're teaching them to effectively fake empathy in a in a sense because that's what can then get the most insight out of their users because you could do all of the things and say all of the things or use all the techniques in the book and not really be very empathetic at all but just sound it, right? And I guess the question is does that even matter? as long as you get the good results out of it. I wonder if underlying that is, is there a, a distinction needed between empathy and compassion? Because it sounds like that might be what you're speaking to. Yeah, I guess it's, it's about whether we're saying that we really, truly, deeply care about every single thing that the person says, or whether we're just making ourselves look like that, using some techniques to, to, to get them to open up. You know, if people fake it till they make it, I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know, Steve Portugal talked about uh, in interviewing his book, Interviewing Users, about how the more interviews people do, the more empathetic they become in their daily life. So maybe the first five or 10 interviews, someone may not genuinely care about what the people are talking about and who they are as people and whatnot. But to anyone who might be thinking that, I encourage you to go interview 20 people about a problem that you care about and come back to me later. And then I'm going to tell you that you can't <laughs> ever touch that problem again or those users or that or anything related to that again. And tell me how you feel. I bet they will be very invested in the problem and those people and be thinking of them as they're thinking about solutions. Sounds like a fair challenge. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, in the book and on the cover of the book, in fact, you've obviously got a little rubber duck. We were desperately trying to find a way to make some one night in product deploy empathy crossover rubber duck <laughs> merchandise in time for this episode. But the idea behind the rubber duck is a story around making yourself something that people can just talk at. But I guess the question I have is, again, if we're talking about empathy, the book is recommending that you effectively become just something, you know, you're, you're contributing like maybe 10% of the conversation and you just want to be as passive as possible. So is it possible to be empathetic if, as you say in the book, people forget that you're a person? Or is it possible for them to feel empathy with you, I guess, as well as is the question? So you don't want them to feel empathy with you. You may want them to feel like you you care about them and you are listening to them and that they are teaching you something. That's probably the most powerful emotion you can inspire in them because they are therefore in an elevated position. And the famous marketing psychologist, Robert Cialdini, like, has, has noted that putting someone in the position of being a teacher is an incredibly effective method. You know, so with the rubber duck, something I just want to clarify is that you're you're not just letting them talk about whatever. You're steering the conversation. You have a topic. You have a strategy for the conversation. They may bring up problems that are not relevant to what you're solving or not feasible for you to solve. And you can always say, you know, let them finish something and say, can we go back to this, you know, other thing that's more relevant to what you're solving? You are steering the conversation in very subtle ways. But I find it helpful to, I, I actually, I say that I picture myself like a sponge that's just there to absorb whatever they have to say within the bounds of, you know, I have a list of questions. I have things I'm trying to touch on. And even if they are rambling a little bit, there's something in there that you can use to tee off of to get back to something that's relevant. You know, a little bit of irrelevantness, you know, five minutes or so is is probably not going to hurt the interview. And if anything, it reinforces to them that you are listening to them, that they are in control of the conversation, even if they may not actually be, <laughs> that they are the one who is contributing to this conversation. And I say that you want them to forget that you are a person because then they will be truly open with you. And it's why I say it's like acting. It's not a regular conversation because if it were a conversation with a friend or someone you wanted to become friends with, it would be very important to build rapport, build shared emotions, shared experiences. There is space for this kind of empathetic communication in our personal lives and in our work lives with coworkers and, and whatnot, but not to the quite the same degree that it would be in an hour-long customer interview. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. But also in product teams, we talk a lot about validation. But when we talk about validation, we're talking about, hey, we've got some hypothesis and we need to validate whether it was correct or whether we need to think again. But in the book, you use the term validation in a very different way. You mentioned, obviously, the other type of validation too, but you're talking very much more about validating the research participants themselves, up to and including, for example, not correcting them if they say something wrong or if they say something the wrong way or mispronounce something even going so far as to mirror their bad pronunciation and stuff like that to make them feel comfortable. So that's obviously something that a lot of people are going to struggle with because they have this natural human tendency to to try to correct people when they 
make a mistake or when they say something that isn't actually true. How can you fight that urge? Because it's always going to be there, right? Yeah, I would suggest people start practicing that in their personal life first. So some of these, (laughs) it's incredibly helpful to practice them in your personal life before you try to put them into an interview. And not correcting people is a very hard one to overcome, but it's very important. I still find myself doing, you know, finding the urge to do it sometimes. I think it has improved my personal life as I have learned over the past, you know, six, seven years of interviewing people to not do that and how destructive it is to trust in a conversation. But yes, I think it's important to validate what people are saying, even if they pronounce something wrong or, you know, because you want it to be a sort of cozy feeling in the interview. And anything you do to correct them or make them feel uncomfortable would distract from that, especially if you're talking to them about an everyday process they do that they thought that nobody cared about. You need to prove to them that you care about what they're saying and that they can say what they want to say without fear of being told what they're saying is boring or it's wrong or it's irrelevant. It'll just shut the interview down. And so I talk a lot about validating the person you're talking to. And as you mentioned, but not necessarily validating the problem and more evaluating a problem, which I think is a very important distinction. And actually, I wrote a newsletter a couple of weeks ago on the topic of hypothesis statements. And actually, I think they're quite damaging because you're setting yourself up for, am I right or am I wrong? And the potential of being wrong is extremely personally threatening, right? Like if you set up hypothesis tests to see if your boss's hypothesis on a product is right or wrong, and you come back to them with no, I can guess how many more sets of interviews you're going to get to do the next time they have an idea. It's going to be zero (laughs) because they will be threatened by it. But if you instead frame things as, we're curious about this, we're curious about how people send invoices, we are curious about whether you know making it easier for them would, would, would do X and Y. If you frame it as a curiosity, it removes that personal stake in the outcome and allows you to truly explore a problem without worrying that your ego and reputation are going to be destroyed by the results of that. Yeah, I think that's a completely fair point around not wanting to poke the bear too much with regards to senior leadership. And (laughs) (laughs) It's becoming a theme in this interview. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what can I say? It's obviously uh, exposing some of my own biases. But speaking of, I guess, what we might call anti-patterns, another thing that you talk about in the book is that some people try to kind of roll in customer research interviews with effectively sales prospecting as well. They'll either try and use it as an opportunity to get a new client or they'll try and use it as an opportunity to unchurn someone who's leaving or anything in between as well. They're trying to kill two birds with one stone, basically. And you're obviously very against that. But what are some of the implications when people do try to do that? Mm -hmm. So I understand the urge to try to do it all at once. You're trying to get a lot done. Maybe you feel like you don't have time for interviews on top of sales calls and trying to stop people from churning and and customer support and all of that. But I encourage people to think about sales, customer support, and customer research as separate buckets where you behave yourself differently in each one of those buckets. 
So for example, in a sales setting, you will want to understand the problem people are solving and build rapport with them. But to dive to the level of sort of emotional depth that you might want to in an interview, that would be inappropriate in a sales setting because people understand that if they start to feel something in a sales setting, they're being manipulated. Yeah. And then their guard goes up. And so you don't want to put them in a position where they're uncomfortable or where they feel like they're revealing too much and they're making themselves a target. At the same time, in say a customer support setting, they have a problem, your product is in the way, understand what they're trying to do, but like get out of their way. Like solve the problem. You can and and again, like dive into a little bit in a sales conversation. Six months after they become a customer, reach out to them. You have a support conversation, reach out to them a few weeks later, be like, hey, you brought this problem to us. Thank you so much for helping us fix that. Like we really appreciate all of your help and patience. Would you have time in the next few weeks for us to dive into that deeper so we can better understand this and improve our product for people who are trying to do that? And then also with churn, I think this is one where the 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 urge is is sometimes the strongest because y- you know any customer who's leaving, you want to just grab them and say no 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 stay I'll do whatever you want please don't leave me right like there's this feeling of being rejected and we want that feeling to go away as much as possible and you can be like oh well if you can talk to them maybe I can convince them out of it and it's important to people who, to talk to people who churn. But I think not for the reasons that people might think. I encourage people to use churn interviews to understand what parts of their marketing are speaking to people who are likely to churn, who have use cases that lead to churn, and then remove that from your marketing. So by process of sort of tipping the scales towards use cases that are better supported by your product and away from use cases that are not as well supported and lead to churn, then you end up with lower churn, but you don't end up with lower churn by going back to every person and desperately asking them not to leave and throwing whatever incentives you can. Because at the end of the day, if your product is not a good fit for their use case, your product is not a good use case. And you could do whatever you want to try to win them back or change your product, but your time is most efficiently spent with those people who already like it, who are already happy with it and making them even happier. So then they were so excited to tell people about it and are happy when their renewal invoice comes in and they know that they don't have to think about that problem anymore because you have solved it. Yeah, it's interesting. It speaks to a very sales-led product development culture. And I think you're completely right that in many ways, these problems do start right up front at the beginning of the relationship because if you're very sales-led, then you're basically trying to use any lever that you can to just get people in and get those contracts signed. And some of them probably should never have signed in the first place, right? It's just, you just, had had a salesperson who wanted to win that sale and they offered some niche or tangential thing that your product could almost do or something like that. So yeah, I can completely understand where it comes from. But I think one of the other things that is very common to talk about at the moment is around kind of focusing on the important rather than just trying to cover everything at the same time, which Mm. I think speaks to some of the same things that you just mentioned. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you on your promotional tour then? So the book's out, you're doing podcasts like this one, you've got your own podcast, but have you got any other big events or roadshows going on? It's funny to ask that because, you know, during COVID, there isn't a whole lot going on. I am going to be co-leading a workshop at Founder Summit on, on writing for founders. And 
I'm really looking forward to getting back out to conferences and to meetups and everything. I'm really hoping to get to go to UX Copenhagen or Jobs to be Done in Copenhagen and whatever that starts happening again. <laughs> and, you know, other conferences, we had been hoping to go to MicroConf Europe, but just for schedule reasons, can't go. I, I really love going to conferences and just, you know, learning from other people, meeting other people who are doing these things. And it's just so much fun to me. So for now, mostly doing podcasts and online things, but hopefully doing things in person. Uh, Fingers crossed. Yeah. At some point, who knows? And where can people find you if they want to chat to you after this about the book or any other themes within it? Yeah. So you can always find me on Twitter, probably too much <laughs> at MJW Hansen. That's Hansen with an E-N. They can email me at michelle at deployempathy.com. That is Michelle with one L. They can also, from deployempathy.com, you can also find my newsletter. You can buy the book and whatnot. And I really hope that people, when they do read the book, they they reach out to me. Just something that makes my day is somebody sending me a note saying that the book made them think about something or it made them rethink something or they've used it in some way. Like that's that, that's just always so so delightful for me and is really why I wrote the book is to help other people. You know, I I already have a job. So <laughs> I did not write the book to make money. It was just to kind of fill this gap. And so what makes it feel like I did what I set out to do is people telling me that it helped them in some way. Well, I'll link everything into the show notes and hopefully you'll help a few more people. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you spending the time and taking us through some of your thoughts. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. This has been really fun. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.